Do not underestimate the power of an enemy, no matter how great or small, to rise against you another day. Attila the Hun. Violin Vice contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Hi. Welcome to Violent Vice Podcast. If you aren't subscribed already, hit, hit the button. It's right there. You know where it is. You see it. It's shiny. Click it. And while you're at it, give us five stars so we can spread the joy and weirdness of our conversations to the rest of people who might enjoy our weirdness and conversations. I am John John. And I'm Audie. Hello. And you might have guessed from mostly the title that you clicked on and the quote, we're talking about Attila the Hun today. Yeah. Which is a little bit timely because of that Mulan movie coming out, even though it's not going to be mostly about China. This guy was the scourge of Rome and many... Nightmares were had because of this particular person. I'm excited for it. Any early predictions slash thoughts on this absolute mad lad? They are going to get over the Great Wall. Uh, That was somebody else. Oh, oops. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm ready to learn something. Excellent. You are at the perfect amount of knowledge about this guy before this. Perfect. So, a quick kind of synopsis. He was born in either 30, uh, 395 AD or 406 AD, being that he's from a nomadic Mongol tribe that don't exactly have piles and piles of documentation and paperwork. It's mostly hearsay and guess based on what was recorded about them but i mean that probably helps there's no dmv in the nomadic mongol tribes so should be an easier life in that regard but roughly around that time is when this particular mad lad was born now to get some kind of context in the whole situation of what's going on just he's part of this hun tribe which essentially first seemed to appear at the end of the fourth century so right around when he was born and was possibly a tribe in itself that broke off from the Zhang Yu clan a lot like the name of the villain in the animated Mulan Disney movies uh, which was predominant in Mongolia and did attack the Great Wall so you were kind of right it just wasn't this guy Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they would attack uh, China pretty consistently. And like they were the barbarians of the north throughout most of that third century during the Han dynasty. If you're a scholar of the Asiatic dynasty system, that gives you 
some idea there, but most of us Westerners probably don't know as much about that as we probably should. Now, to get some sort of description of this mad lad, we actually have to go to Romans, who had writing, and one particularly avid historian of the Romans, uh, Priscus, met this guy and did his best to describe him, though his particular writings were somewhat lost to time, but was recorded in a different Roman guy's journals of the whole area, whose name was Jordanes. But this is essentially word for word translated to English of how he would describe Attila the Hun. He was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither. I like that word, thither. Uh, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to suppliants and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. Short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head, his eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and swarthy skin, showing evidence of his origin. And that's the most accurate representation of what he might look like, which is pretty vague in general. Yes, and this was written by uh, Triscus? Uh, Priscus. Priscus. Tri Triscus, Triscus are crackers. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Apparently I, I'm hungry. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. That sounds like a good collaboration chip cracker from Triscuit and Pringles. With yep. Priscus, so we might be onto something there. Oh boy. <laughs> but yeah, this is the only known or well documented slash credible description of what this man might have looked like. Otherwise it's mostly just paintings of what they heard happened years and years before these people were even born. So Roughly time-wise, this is kind of what he looks like. And now kind of some more context of what's going on in the world at the moment. Um, the Huns pretty much were throughout all of the Midlands, I want to say, of Asia. So like between Russia and the Himalayas type stuff. That was kind of just their territory. And they started to move their hordes towards Europe, where there was a lot of nice things. Because, I mean, trade was still happening between these places, and a lot of nice stuff came from there. So, they began their conquest of Europe, leading a horde of not just the Huns, per se. It was more like a bunch of different clans that just agreed that these people had a good idea. Let's get in on it. Uh, each of them had its own king or ruler type person so like chieftains but with a little bit more than just like one particular group of people to their ruling station and uh they began conquering smaller states 
and peoples throughout most of the eastern part of Europe making their way towards that Mediterranean and Atlantic coast. Uh, coming across roughly the first of like the more named or noted countries or groups of people in Europe were the Alans. And through their first major push, they kind of conquered them. With that, Romans who had conquered most of the Mediterranean area started to kind of take notice of these guys. So pushing from the islands, they moved more through the Gothic states. Uh, like these, okay, these are kind of fun names to try and say, but I am pretty sure I'm saying them wrong. Like they went through the Gruthungi. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a fun name to say. Gruthungi. Gruthungi. Nice. He sounds like all, a fun guy. Funky. Well, it's, it's like a clan of Goths in the Germanic area. So there was the Grthungi peoples and the Thurvingi as well. That one's also fun to say. <laughs> nice. And in their conquering of these Gothic places that were not quite under Roman control, control yet, the Goths that weren't exactly part of these had to migrate west into Roman Empire territory which kind of helped the Romans but also helped to build more chance of rebellion against the Romans in these places and Rome was already kind of splitting into its two separate nations with the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern so kind of the split of Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Church type situations. Makes now, sense. typically you would think the capital of at least one of these separations would be Rome because they're Romans. But no, none of them had that. Constantinople was the East and the West was actually Milan, not Rome. For some reason. So in some sort of regard, people were thinking that the Western Roman Empire would be the one that would last more than anything else. Meaning that they would still be around for a super long time. Because they had Rome and they had all this Western technology and wealth. But... It turns out the Eastern ones lasted so long they had to change their name to the Byzantine Empire, which was around, I think, all the way up to almost World War One. So, one worked really well. Sounds like it. <laughs> but it's kind of where Rome was splitting in two, so it wasn't as unified as it once was. But the Huns were moving in uh, through Europe... Rome was a little bit more chaotic than it normally would like to be. And on the eastern side with Constantinople, they started, the Huns moved more away from the Goths and more towards this rich Middle Eastern area and started attacking Syria and uh, Cappadocia, which I'm not exactly sure where that would be nowadays, but it is like one of the more strong nations of that time in 
the Middle East, and, as well as the Saracens, which was kind of pre-Persia before it was Persia. But nowadays we would call that the Neo-Persian Empire. So, so scratch that. It wasn't pre-Persia, post-Persia, not pre-Persia. So the Roman Empire had Hun problems, mostly the ones dealing with the Goths moving into where they should be in the West and them literally attacking their empire in the East because this was a huge horde, just tons of these nomadic horsemen with bows and arrows. And oddly enough, the only people able to drive the Huns back from their territory were the Saracens, kind of living up to their conquering and militarily strong lineage from that area. Now, also around this time, the Huns, which were still not officially unified in some way, were much like mercenaries in the in-between areas of Rome. So not the far ends, but kind of where they were gathering more territory through the middle of Europe and right where it meets Asia as well as mercenaries of sorts by the Romans who were having to deal with Hun problems themselves. So in the following decades, the Romans and the Huns had a sort of uneasy alliance, often breaking that alliance on both sides where one might have something that the other wants, but may not have the forces to fend off the other. So it was a lot of just like, we're friends, but we're stealing your stuff. And it's just like, I know you stole our stuff before, but I'm still going to hire you. Also, I'm going to take this stuff of yours because you're not protecting it well enough. So a lot of like, just like, we'll work together, but I hate you type situation going on between Rome and the Huns. And just after decades of all of this happening, the Huns were eventually unified by these two brothers, like great leaders amongst their own particular clans and pretty good diplomats for a nomadic tribe. Uh, their names were Ruga or Rugila. Hard to say for sure since nobody really met them. Uh, as well as his brother, Akhtar, who each kind of ruled half of Han territory in their own kind of respect. So, sort of like two kings, one territory situation. Each had their particular areas. Akhtar just brought me back to Reptar from Rugrats, and I had a I'm <laughs> so glad. I am so glad because it did that for me too. I was just like, I don't think I should mention it, but it's what I thought. Yeah. So. <laughs> I miss Rugrats. That was a great show. Oh. <sighs> Sorry for the interruption. But no, that's okay. It was funny. Quick nostalgia break, I guess. Yeah. But uh, now after these brothers unified all these different kind of clans going under a particular name. They embraced that name, the Huns, and were each ruling each other's 
kind of people as long as they were in their territory since they had similar ideas it seemed but later on due to either some sort of alcohol poisoning a sickness or just wounds over a certain amount of time Octar died in the year 430 so the two kings were now just one and instead of finding a replacement for Octar Ruga just ruled alone for at least a little over a decade before also dying of similar type means. Now, Ruga and Octar also had another brother uh, whose name was Mon Monzuk. Now, Monzuk had two sons of his own. Even though he wasn't a chieftain ruler himself, Ruga kind of took his two nephews as sort of a way to replace him and his brother eventually. Now, these two uh, nephews were named Bleda and Attila. And that was all that was left of the official lineage of these two brothers. So, once... Ruga had died, then rulership fell to both of these brothers to rule the Huns in a similar way to Ruga and Octar. So now there's instead the two rulers, Attila and Bleda, which, I mean, Bleda is a pretty descriptive name. It's just, they're, they're both fighters, both, both, uh, cat warriors incense so it's just there there seemed to be an expectation right from the get-go now since they were both ruling the rulership and the control of the huns was actually very similar to their uncle for a long time most likely using the similar strategies of dividing and conquering throughout each of their like particular territories and armies whereas if somebody went into the other person's controlled territory they were essentially that person's citizens for a certain amount of time uh that is until the year 445 a.d when bleda died from uncertain circumstances now some people theorize that Attila went to his brother's territory, challenged him to a fight, and killed him, or did so through more nefarious means, with either poisoning or just straight up assassinating him. There's no concrete evidence that this happened, but it does kind of fit the personality a bit more. So, now Attila was in charge on his own. Now, the Romans, in a way to kind of conscript the Huns as mercenaries for a good while, and so the Huns wouldn't straight up invade Roman territory, had been paying the Huns as like a yearly tribute, starting under Ruga's particular control, and were willing to pay Attila even more to maintain this uneasy but more so agreed upon 
allegiance or straight up peace. And it seems a lot more like mafia protection money type situation. It's just, if you come here, it's just gonna just fuck us up. So don't come here. We'll give you stuff so you just let us do our thing. And in a way, it kind of worked. I mean, who doesn't like to get paid just to sit around? It's a pretty good deal if you ask me. But Attila's not exactly like that. He likes to fight. He likes war. He likes doing things. So in 435, a treaty was signed by both the Romans and Attila. It was called the Treaty of Marges, which is the town that it was signed in, that crazily favored the Huns, sort of guaranteeing them a annual tribute of 700 pounds of gold and a return of any Hun refugees and sort of an avoid of alliance like alliance with enemies of the Romans and in exchange the enemies of the Huns were to be untouched by the Romans as well so it's just don't attack my friends. I won't attack your friends. And also give me all your money. Seems pretty good. So Attila was very much on board with that. So he had pretty much left Rome alone for the most part. At least for a while. Instead focusing more on the eastern side of things. Uh, and trying to conquer the Saracens. Like his uncles did. But... They were unsuccessful in doing so. So, trying to prove himself better than them, he went to attack them. Which ended up not working either. Similar tactics, similar practices would get similar results. So, Attila lost his battle trying to conquer the Saracens for himself. And left to go try picking off smaller prey. So instead he went after King Gundahar of Burgundy, who is somewhat popular from that area. Uh, he's even in like the poetic Edda and certain mentions and whatnot. Uh, in that particular legend, uh, Gundahar is slain by Attila himself in the poetic Edda, roughly at 437 AD. But that could be more just like creative writing and not exactly fact. Because it, it's the poetic Edda. It's dramatic. It's compelling and stuff like that. So Attila did attack. King Gundahar died. Uh, and the Burgundians were the enemy of Rome invading uh, uh, Belgisa Prima in the Gaul territories. With the Roman and Hun forces combined, they defeated the Burgundians themselves. So Rome was kind of on board with this as well, since they were fighting the Burgundians. And Attila mostly took the credit because he did most of the work. So now it's about 441 AD. The Huns had invaded Eastern Roman Empire again, plundering uh, 
the Moesia and Ilgricum provinces. So not the Saracens directly, just provinces surrounding them. Sort of just like, okay, fine, you beat me. But I'm still going to take a lot of your stuff. And it ended officially the treaty with Rome itself, even though they were Western and Eastern Rome. And most likely, since many of the Roman forces in that area were relocated to North Africa fighting there at that particular time. So Attilic might have also exploited a weakness in forces, like seeing an opportunity and taking it, but on a more large scale than the small skirmishes that went back and forth. And those attacks were so successful that Rome was very scared, thinking that that treaty was more security for them than, like, the Huns didn't need to do that. Like, they didn't need the treaty to keep things going for their empire, but Rome kind of needed it going so they could keep theirs. So in 443, Rome was willing to make an even newer treaty that was even more beneficial to the Huns like with a th over a thousand pounds of gold this time extra bribery yeah it's just like maybe it wasn't enough money we'll just give you more of that and of course until accepted it's just like i mean we're gonna do what we're gonna do but if you want to give me money sure why not i'll take it so he took that particular payment and moved his horde back into the heart of hun territory and this is the particular time when Attila went and faced his brother or killed him, straight up murdering him at that point. So the treaty didn't exactly last long again. So by 447, Attila invaded the Eastern Roman Empire again in the Balkans, which was very successful for him. Capturing a lot. Uh, he ended up capturing hundreds of people and making it all the way to Thermopylae in Greece in terms of how far he invaded into Roman territory. So lots of riches, lots of new citizens in a way, as well as like a lot of new merchandise and things to bolster his own hoard. And... Rome kind of was angry, frustrated, understandably so. It's like, we paid this guy all this money and he's still not listening to us. So I'm going to have to team up and try and take this guy out. So they try to unite with all of Rome's forces, keeping them all in there together. So it's being spread out all throughout the area because that was a bit easier for the Huns to pick off which resulted in this particular battle the Battle of Utis and while Rome did end up losing that battle the Huns took heavy casualties as well though Attila was still alive afterwards so it's like a big battle where Rome was like that's it we're standing up to you Attila's just like, I'll show you what happens when you stand up to me. You're going to lose. Smack. 
Of course, Rama smacked back and suddenly Attila is a little bit more underprepared than he once was. And kind of being egotistical in a way, full of himself after a victory of the entire Western Roman army, he focused on Constantinople, thinking if he can take one out, he could probably take out the other. And then realizing once he got there that he didn't have the forces he needed to do so and he was just severely underprepared. So when he got there, he had to settle for another treaty with Constantinople that he paid him even more than what was before. So he's just getting all these riches just because he decides not to attack another place. And while he probably wouldn't win, Constantinople would have suffered greatly as well. So... He's coming out pretty good, considering. Yeah. I mean, he didn't come out unscathed against the war with... Or that particular battle against the Romans. And even though he probably wouldn't have won in the battle against Constantinople, they were still willing to pay him a bunch of money to not even try. It's just like, okay. I mean, it was going to be iffy from the start, and now you're just giving me money. Sure, why not? So they went back and regrouped in Hungary. Not not the feeling, the, the country. That area. So in 450... Instead of going back to Constantinople, it's just like, you know, we're just going to use this money and we're going to go west. And unlike the Western Romans, who ended up always paying Attila, the Eastern Empire uh, did not pay anything at all to Attila. They just said it. But... Regardless, Attila just kept going west. It's just like they essentially surrendered without me having to attack. And that's almost more valuable than money at that point to Attila. Uh, but in his journey west to the Western Roman Empire, he ended up receiving a letter uh, from the emperor of the Western Roman Empire's sister who was seeking his particular help to avoid a prearranged marriage. Which, kind of out of the blue, isn't it? A little. So the Western Empire's sister sends Attila the Hun the letter. Yeah. Like, full-on emperor is just like, I hate this guy with all my guts. By the way, sister, you're getting married to this guy over here. She's like, screw that. No, I hey. mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So... Attila felt that it was just a proposal outright by her and that suddenly all of Western Europe was only naturally fitting as a dowry for the emperor's sister. So it's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll marry you. And as a gift for doing so, I can have all of Western Roman Empire. Great. I'd love that. Not quite sure how that works, but yeah. <laughs> And it probably wasn't exactly what it was either. It's just like... No. I just want you to get out of 
help me get out of this particular situation. Well, you can kill the guy, but I, I don't want to get married. That's that's kind of I was avoiding that, but uh. she may have wanted to start a coup, but <laughs> ended up being married to Attila the Hun instead. That's that's kind of funny. Yeah, but I think eventually Attila caught on to her original meeting, uh, meeting. Even though he didn't really care about the marriage overall and didn't exactly expect them to just hand over the empire, it was an excuse for him to go to war. In 451, they conquered most of Gaul. So most of that Roman territory of the eastern and northern parts of Europe. And it's just like, well, if you're not going to come out here and marry me, I'll just take it. All right, fine. Of course, Rome was just like, no, no, that's not okay. We have to stop this guy. So losing all of this territory, losing all of these people throughout the entirety of Europe, the Huns had a lot of control and Rome was getting desperate. So the Romans united with all of these other enemies of the Huns to fight off the Huns and push them back. So in one of the bloodiest conflicts of the time, this united force of several different countries and empires defeated the Huns while taking very heavy casualties themselves. Unfortunately, unfortunately for them, Attila had also survived that battle. And the United Forces ended up returning to their own particular countries to regroup and resume their own political battlefield of who controls what. So Attila was defeated, returned back to the core of his territory, empire thing, gathered up his forces and planned to attack Rome at its heart. So a year later, he returned and set his sights on Italy. So right in the middle of everything. He ended up destroying the city of Aquila and uh, plundering as well Venetia, almost destroying it completely and everything rebuilt there became Venice. So I guess that's a way to remodel a city. I mean, I guess. Venice is like so beautiful. So. <laughs> it's crazy. It is crazy how much this guy just screwed over an entire nation. Yeah. Or several nations. I mean... I talk going back to the city comment. I, that's what Boudicca did to Londominium that became London. Mm -hmm. Just burn it to the mm -hmm. ground and restart. It's just like, all right, we'll make the name close and we'll rebuild it and it'll be better. We can kind of forget about what it used to be. Cool. <laughs> cool. So he pushed through all of Italy. Well, most of Italy, taking some of these majors, those particular major cities out returned and kind of began to bask in all this wealth that he has. Now, 
and 453 the following year after that. He ended up dying in a rather untypical way of what you would expect. He was at his own wedding, celebrating as many do. Lots of parties, lots of meat, lots of booze. And he ended up dying, choking on his own blood, likely caused by alcohol poisoning or just built up internal bleeding. So in the tradition of chieftain burials of the Mongolians, this is a little bit interesting and why nobody knows much about this. It was an anonymous burial. So no headstone, no identifying markers. And he was buried within three coffins. All like a turducken, like one inside the, the other one. And so he was... His body was inside a gold coffin, which was inside of a silver coffin, which was inside of an iron coffin, and three separate burial mounds in a random location were all buried in a similar way, so nobody could truly identify which was Attila. And once all of these preparations, all, all work was done, everyone involved in the burial was then killed so there was nobody alive who knew exactly where and who is buried in which coffin if they ever come across its location i mean that's one way to hide a dead body i i mean yeah so in short attila showed up Tried to follow his uncle's footsteps. Fucked up Rome royally. In both ends. And then died partying his face off. I mean, not like the most awful way to go. Well, no. So, question though. Do you yeah. think... Like, I know you said it was alcohol poisoning, but do you think he could have been poisoned there instead of alcohol poisoning? Or... Like somebody tried to kill him, or do you think it was him just drinking too much? Um, there is a chance that it was poisoning and not just alcohol poisoning. And there's also a chance that it could have just been after all of these battles, there was just so much bent, pent up internal bleeding and clots that just it ended up killing him when he finally kind of relaxed. So it could have been a number of these things, but according to particular people who did record that event, his new wife in particular, she did say that he choked to death on something. And since he wasn't eating anything and it wasn't his tongue, it was likely his own blood. So whether that was due to alcohol internal bleeding or somebody straight up just poisoning him he's he's dead yeah well he would be dead no matter what from time yeah but yeah dead from that yeah but i think more people would like to find out more about him and what he might have looked like if they didn't sort of do that three cup find which one's him 
shuffle type thing that you see on like the side streets and you pay money and it ends up being a trick the whole time. Plus, people can only guess where he might have been buried. So it's it's no guarantee that that's Attila, no matter what, if we actually find him. There's no way of knowing if it is him. Yeah. But yeah, what do you think, Adi? I think he did a lot. He did? Yeah. He kind of fucked up Rome quite a lot. A lot. A lot. And he saw a lot of the world as well. Like, most of the central part of Asia. He was in the Middle East through a lot of it. He got to go through most of Italy, Germany, some of the northern parts of, like, that Baltic Sea area, as well as, like, in Russian territory in some regard. Extremely well-traveled for the time. Yeah. Though I don't think he was sightseeing. No, I think he was conquering. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know... Why not sightsee a little on the way? It's just like, I mean, maybe he didn't like crowds. And that was the whole point. It's just like, I want to see these things. Too many people in the way. Can't get a good picture. Kind of Dwight Schrutin it. A little bit. A little bit. But that's all I have on Attila today. Do you want to take us out then? Yeah, I can. Thank you guys so much for listening to Violent Advice. We really appreciate it. If you guys could do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, write a review, and leave five stars. That would mean the world to us and helps us boost up the charts so we can find more people like you. Um, If you guys want to email us, have any concerns, or want to suggest a topic, you can do that at vileandvice at gmail.com. That's V-I-L-E-A-N-D-V-I-C-E at gmail.com no ampersands here we also have all of the social media so you can follow us on facebook and instagram at vile and vice podcast and we also have a twitter at vile and vice and if you guys want to go above and beyond and support us on patreon you can do that at patreon.com backslash vile and vice again that's v-i-l-e a-N-D-V-I-C-E. And we did switch our tiers around so you can get all the bonus content at supporting at the $1 level. So we have a couple bloopers, some more paralysis stories, as well as more Black Eyed Kids stories. Where you get yes. to hear John John be oh so scared. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I like the blooper ones a bit better, personally. Yeah. But you seem to enjoy terrifying me, so... It's Maybe so whoever supports us will as well. Yeah, so you, you can do that at Patreon. Um, as well as Patreon gets like bonus content when we open up a merch site. That'll be where everything's on first. And we just really appreciate all the sports. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Reback. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash violinvice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you.